Well, my name is Zach. For those of you that don't know me, I want to welcome you to Antioch this Sunday morning. The Thanksgiving remnant who are in town on Thanksgiving weekend. Way to go for coming to church with bellies full of turkey. And I'm excited to be here with you as we head into Advent. Uh, before we focus on that, though, I want to turn your attention about two months forward on the calendar to a really special event we have coming up as a church that we uh, celebrate every year. It's called World Mandate Weekend. And I want to share with you a little video about what's to come because I would love for you to be a part. So if we can turn that video on, please. Society has always been obsessed with dreams. I have a dream today. The dream of partnership across the Atlantic. Produce your own dream. <laughs> <laughs> the home they've always dreamed of. The happiest. But what if a generation tapped into the dreams of heaven? What if we allowed God to dream his dreams through us? What if we caught his dreams for our classrooms, our businesses, our families, our society? Then those who dream might actually change the world. Exciting. So that is coming up February 7th and 8th. Why in the world do I tell you that today? This is why uh, the early bird registration for the conference ends next Sunday. So if you like to get a good deal, you wanted your Black Friday deal, maybe you didn't get it, I'm giving you a Black Sunday deal on World Mandate. You can sign up, early bird registration, there's a kids conference. Kids conference sold out last year, we expect it will again this year. We believe the, uh, the gathering in here will sell out as well. So I encourage you to sign up, save some money, and be there. We would love to uh, go through that together as a community. Okay, it is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is the season in the life of the church, not just our church, but the historic church every year where we uh, look forward to Christmas. And in looking forward to Christmas, we're, we're remembering back to Jesus' incarnation, God himself writing himself into the story. We remember his incarnation, but it's also a time when historically the church has looked forward to his return, has looked forward to his second coming, the return of Christ and all that that means. And so each week as we build up to Christmas uh, through the month of December, we're going to be celebrating Advent with, with readings. We're going to be doing uh, well-known Christmas carols, and we're going to be looking at the return of of Christ and what all does that mean? So I want to invite you to take out your Bibles right now. We're going to be in the book of Revelation today. It's the last book in the Bible. And uh, I was a, a teacher vocationally in the school system for a number of years. And then I've done a number of years of helping people grow in their faith in Christ. And one of the things that I've learned as a teacher is that when the information that we're taking in, when it shifts from being something we just hear to something we engage with with our eyes and, and we touch with our hands and we interact with, the truths that we're learning go deeper, whether that's math or science or social studies, but particularly God's word. 
And so that's why each week I encourage you to take out your Bibles and not just to let the, the scriptures be put up on the screen. That's good. But there's something that happens when you take out the word of God for yourself. And when you look at God's word and when you take it in, don't just listen to me talk about it, but you let God speak through his word to you, it sinks deeper. It transforms in greater and greater ways. I remember one time working with a, with a guy who I've been reaching out to. He didn't know Jesus, but he was interested. And we were doing a series of Bible studies where we'd look at different passages of Scripture, and there'd be questions that we would answer. And we would read it together, and then we'd ask the questions. And, and without a doubt, every time, he would, instead of answering what the Scripture said, he would answer kind of based off what he had heard or what he had thought. And I'd be like, no, no, no. Right now, what you think is important, but what we're looking at is what does God's word say about this? And I'd say, look in verse 17. What is it saying there? And he'd go back and he'd look at it, and it would be like light bulbs came on in his eyes as he engaged the word of God for himself. And he began to hear God speak to him through his word, and it transformed his life. And I want that for you. I want that for me. I think I may have one good idea out of every 100 right? Uh, but you didn't come to hear my one good idea out of a hundred crazy ones. What you came today to hear was to grow in your relationship with God and to hear from him through his word. And so I want to encourage you to take out your Bibles. And if you are a parent in the room and your children are with you, this is a great discipleship opportunity. We do these family services twice a year uh, because we value each generation represented in our church. And this is an opportunity for us to learn one generation to another and so if you're sitting with your kids, they might be crazy today. They might be hyped up on Thanksgiving dessert and be bouncing off the walls. That is okay. Church is not meant to be clean. It's meant to be messy. We're going to be fine. But I want to encourage you to take out the word of God with your kids and let it speak and sow into their lives as well. Okay, so Advent is a season of waiting, and it's a season of looking back and also looking forward at the return of Christ and, and longing for his return. And this longing and waiting for the return of Christ has been something that the church has been pregnant with since its very foundation. In Philippians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes and he exhorts the followers of Jesus in Philippi with this. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. There's this eagerly awaiting a Savior to return, Jesus to return. In 2 Timothy, he articulates it like this. He says, now there's in store for me, Paul, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, speaking about the return of Christ. And he says, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing, all who have longed for the return of Jesus. The apostle John Revelation 22, he ends uh, the, the scriptures. He's coming to a close, and he says this. He says, the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, and the bride, meaning the church, say to Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. And he says, let the one who hears say, come, Lord Jesus. The church has long been pregnant with this hope and this longing and this waiting for Christ's return. It's been so important to the church that when the church fathers were summarizing the essentials of the faith in the Nicene Creed, they articulated it like this as, a, as an essential of what we believe, that Jesus will come again in glory 
to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Interesting note, uh, our calendar as we normally think about it starts in January with New Year's and you have new resolutions and new goals and new habits and a new year and new you and all those things. The church calendar actually doesn't begin in January, it begins with Advent. The church calendar begins with the season of waiting and longing and looking for the return of Christ. So in many ways, I would say to you, Happy New Year, right? As we enter into this season, and this is what begins our year as followers of Jesus. This is what begins our focus. We're we're looking to him and we're longing for his return. Now, the question that you might be asking, and I hope you're asking, is why? Why are we waiting and longing for Christ's return? Now, when I was a kid, uh, my family, as we led up to Christmas each year, we would get this deal called an Advent calendar. Anybody in your family have an Advent calendar? We have a few. Now, I'm going to let you in on something, kids, in the room. You should ask your parents for one of these because behind each door that you would open a new one each day is chocolate. So each day, you get a new piece of candy as you're waiting for Christmas. So I remember as a kid... Man, I was so excited about this calendar, and you'd open the day, and you'd eat the chocolate, and you'd be like, man, I'm so ready for the next day so I can open the next door and get some more candy. But even more than that, I'm waiting for that 25th door to open because I'm ready for presents. And I know, you know, you're supposed to think about Christmas as the the meaning of being with family and being thankful for Jesus coming and all those things. But as a kid, I'll be honest with you, and sometimes even as an adult, My focus is on presents. Those are really fun, right? So what, oh, you guys are a little, come on, I know you. I know that some of you have already built out your Amazon wish list and you've got it stacked a mile long, right? You're looking forward to, maybe it's Legos, maybe it's a bicycle, a skateboard, a Nintendo. Maybe you're a little bit older and there's some other things that you're interested in or you're older and you still want a Nintendo. Whatever it may be, right? We're longing for presents And so it makes sense why something like an advent calendar would get us excited and would stir up that waiting, that longing, because we know what is to come. But when we're talking about waiting for Jesus' return, it's like, ah, I I don't know. Like, when I think about it, right, I remember as a new Christian, I would see these bumper stickers that would say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Now, I wasn't sure what the rapture was, so I asked a friend, and they told me that Jesus is going to come back and take all the believers away, and that was really scary to me, because I'm like, what if you get left behind, and are there going to be all these cars that are driving with no one in them now, and you're going to get crashed into, it was just overwhelming, and then I would try and read in the book of Revelation, and there would be about heaven and Jesus' return, there'd be like dragons and horns and harlots and plagues, and I was just like, this is so confusing, so confusing. And so I was just like, I'm just going to focus on uh, trying to love God today, trying not to sin, trying to do a good job at school, trying to do a good job at my work, like those kind of things. I was just like, I have no, no idea what to do there. And then I remember being at church, and they said, get excited about heaven because it's going to be an unending worship service. Yeah, and I I like worship, and I I like that. I was like, okay, but then when I started thinking about an eternal worship service, singing songs, 
forever. I got overwhelmed. I was like, I don't know. That might get a little boring after a while if I'm really honest. And so for me, this idea of Christ's return put up on a shelf and just put in the back of a storage shed on the side of my house where I keep all the other kind of things that we don't know what to do with, but you know they're important, so you kind of got to have a place for them, right? And I find that that's most of us. When we're talking about Jesus' return, it's like, okay, I know I should be excited about that, but I feel really confused, really overwhelmed, and I don't know if I'm actually going to like heaven. It just seems like a long time, and I like worship, but, oh, man, I don't know, right? Has anybody ever felt those things? Anybody ever thought about that? Well, I have good news for you today and good news for you this Advent season. Each week during this time, we're going to be looking at one of the reasons why it's such a good thing that Jesus would return and why it's so good that we would long and hunger and wait and even begin our year looking toward his return. And the one we're going to learn each week is going to be we long for the return of Christ because it brings and then fill in the blank. And so today, it's we long for the return of Christ because it brings the hope of heaven. We long for the return of Christ because it brings the hope of heaven. Now, we've been learning about hope as a community. We've seen that we are creatures of hope, that our hopes for tomorrow fuel our lives for today that we need hope to live and that Jesus is our anchor of hope. And what we're going to see, one of the reasons why we want to long and wait and look for his return is because of the hope stored up for all of us in heaven and heaven's arrival in our lives. And so with that, if you'll go to Revelation 21, starting in verse 4, I'm starting in verse uh, 1 rather, Revelation 21, we're going to read starting in verse 1 through 4, and we're going to go through a couple sections. And here's what the Word of God says. It said, then I saw, this is, this is John speaking, and he's speaking about uh, the return of Christ. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, dressed beautifully for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now look into verse 22. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will their gates be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of nations will be brought into it. And then chapter 22, verse 1 through 3, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And down the middle of the street of the great city and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse there. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. It's a powerful passage or several passages of scripture and I want to walk you through these images that John gives us that describe Christ's return and heaven that it brings into our lives. And so the first one that I want to show you is in Revelation 21, verse 1, the first verse that we read, you'll notice that John, when describing Christ's return and describing what happens, he says this, that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, that that's the way he described it, new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now, I don't do this often, but I feel this is important as we look at this passage to take you into the background on the word new. The Greek word that's used as new here is not meant in the sense of new time, new in time, or new in origin. This is not some sort of new thing like that that just sprung up, a new heaven that just popped up. No, this is the word new that means new in nature or new in quality. In the same way that when we come to Christ as individuals, the Bible says that we get a new nature, that we're transformed from an old sinful nature into this new nature made in the likeness of Christ. It's that same kind of word here saying the transformation that Christ brings when he returns is not just transforming us as individuals, but it's transforming the whole world, new heaven and new earth. And so 77% of Americans who believe in a resurrection believe it's going to be this kind of extra-worldly spiritual existence. We go to some places, spirits, and that's where we live. But what the Bible shows us is something very, very, very different. That when Christ returns, the resurrection is going to be very physical. It's going to look very much like this earth and this heaven and this life, except renewed and made new and brought out the full potential of what could be. Ways that Bible commentators describe it is they say that God's work does not replace but restores. So it's not that this whole thing is just going to be tossed to the side and then there's going to be something new put in place. No, that this world... This creation is going to be restored under God's glory, just like your life and mine is restored when we come to Christ. Another commentator says, God hangs on to his fallen original creation and salvages it, that he saves it and he makes it new. So I want you to begin to think about this new heaven and this new earth that Christ's return Brings, And we're going to go into a few descriptions of it that John gives to us about what it's like, what it's like there. In the second half of verse 21, the first descriptor that he gives is he says, there was no longer any sea. Now, you might be like, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of a beach person. I was hoping to spend eternity by, you said, new earth. I'm going to Maui, and that's where I'm going to spend a long time. 
Well, I don't know about that, but, but what I want to show you is what he's meaning when he's talking about there's no longer any sea. In Jesus' day and in John's day, the sea was a place of great terror. It was a place of chaos. It was a place of destruction. It was a place that was thought to be ruled by dark and demonic forces and spirits. And so when you talked about the sea, it symbolized so much more than just a body of water. And I remember, if we can put that picture of the ocean up, I remember at one point in my life, Christina and I, we lived in an apartment uh, in Africa that literally overlooked the Atlantic Ocean. And it was an amazing view at times. And then there were times where I would look out the apartment window and I would be overwhelmed with the power of the ocean. And I would see storms coming in and I'd see how much water there was in the ocean, I was like one big wave, and I'm done for. And I remember I would go try and swim in it, and I, I'm a good swimmer, and I'm a strong guy, so it takes a lot to knock me over. And I remember the power of those waves just being upended and thrown by a small little wave in this powerful ocean, right? And when we think about a tsunami or something like that, we, we see and we experience the power of the ocean, and the fear that comes with it of the chaos and the destruction that it can bring. And so when John is saying there is no sea, he's not saying there's not going to be water there. We're going to see that there's water in a moment. But what he's saying is the destructive powers of chaos and darkness and demonic forces, they're going to be gone. He says in verse 4, the way he describes it is that Christ will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. So the first thing that defines this new heaven and new earth is not by what's there, but by what's not there. The pain of this life. The chaos and the destruction of this life. The demonic forces of this life are no more. It is a place of peace and of comfort. And of life. And then look in verse 2. He describes, he gives us another description of this new heaven and new earth. He said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared, look at this description. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, we as people, we love beauty. I looked up how much we spend on ourselves to make ourselves beautiful in a lifetime. It's really interesting. Men in the room, we spend in a lifetime, we spend a total of $175,000. Wow, $175,000 on making ourselves look beautiful. Women in the room. Wow. Y'all don't think much of yourself. Hold on. Uh, women in the room, you spend an average of $225,000 in your lifetime on looking beautiful. So men and women, we're spending so much money on wanting to bring out our beauty. We love beauty. The average cost of a wedding is $34,000, according to a Knot survey in 2018. Right? It's one of the most expensive events of our life. Right, and what do we want? We want this beautiful day. And when I do weddings, I want to stand right there where I see the groom, see the bride, 
and she's dressed, you know, adorned for her husband and her wedding day, and he is looking at her, and I love to see the look on his face, so everybody's looking at her, I'm looking at him, because you can see the tears come, and you can see the awe come, and you can see the wonder come, and I remember when my bride walked down the aisle, and my breath taken away, right? That's the descriptor here. We long for beauty. And here, John is saying, The new heaven, new earth that Christ's return brings is not about the physical beauty of a person, but it's about the beauty of a place, a beauty of a location, the beauty of a city. So I looked up for you some beautiful places in our world, and I want to show them to you. Now, you may have others that you think should be on the list. This was from Condé Nast, the travel publication of the most beautiful places First one, if you put this up, it's Hawaii. Beautiful. Who wants to go there for Christmas? Come on, right? It's awesome. You may be like, well, I'm not so much of a beach or a mountains guy. I'm a flowers person. Well, look at this. This is France. Go to the next one, please. Wow. Take your breath away. Now you're like, well, I'm not really a flowers person. I'm a city person. Next one is Chef Shawin, Morocco. There's this beautiful, like, blue city. I've been there. It's unbelievable. Maybe you like the sand. This is Algeria. It's incredible desert. It's beautiful. Here is Banff uh, National Park in Canada. You ever thought about going to Canada? That place looks awesome. Next one is uh, in Arizona. We got any Arizona people in our church? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on. That's a, I, I, that looks just amazing. Okay, the next one that we have um, is Yemen. Yemen. Aren't those the most amazing trees? Like, that would just be so cool to sit under that tree and read a book. You would feel like you're in Lord of the Rings. Like, it just is amazing. Last one that I wanted to uh, show you is Lake Malawi. And I'm sure if you are a fisherman, you could do some good fishing in that lake, Right? Those places are beautiful. They take our breath away. We, we want to go there. We want to spend time there. We think about it and we, we save money in order to be able to go on trips to places like that. They're beautiful. And get what John is saying. He's saying the new heaven and the new earth is of a quality and of a nature so far superior to the natural beauty of this world. We don't even have the senses to comprehend it. It's like a bride adorned for a husband. This city, this beautiful city coming down. This new world is a place of beauty. So it's a place where pain is gone. It's a place where beauty is established. And then look in verse 24 through 26. It says that of this city in this new world that nations will walk by its light, that kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, and on no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. This is such a powerful image. And I want to make sure everybody gets this. Commenting on this passage, Cornelius Venomous said this, Nothing of the diversity of the nations and peoples, their cultural products, their languages, their arts, their sciences, their literature, and their technology, so far as these are good and excellent, will be lost upon life in the new creation. What I want to make sure that you see is what he's saying 
is that when the new heaven and the new earth comes, it's not like everything from this life is just going to be thrown to the side. But the things of this life that are godly and God-inspired from all the different nations and cultures and languages of our world, that God is going to take those and use those in this new world that he's building, that the wealth and the glory of the nations will be there. That's just so exciting to me. I was, I was thinking about this and just reflecting on this, and I read this great quote by N.T. Wright talking about this very thing. Uh, he's a well-known theologian, and this is what he says. He says, by this, uh, he means, he's speaking about this idea of the new world. He said, he means that when you do something in the present, by painting or preaching, or singing, or sowing, or praying, or teaching, or building hospitals, or digging wells, or campaigning for justice, or writing poems, or caring for the needy, or loving your neighbor as yourself. These things will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind but they are a part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. By such labors, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that are about to be dug up for the building of a site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, You're accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. Wow, that's amazing. So I want to show you a little example. This is from my friend Ashley. Um, Ashley is a painter. Uh, She learned how to paint along the way. She's an amazing painter. Let me get in a good spot. Amazing painter, and a number of years ago... I asked her for Easter Sunday if she would do some sort of painting that we could put in the lobby of our church. And if you remember our old church building, uh, we put it right there in the middle of the lobby on Easter Sunday. And I was really excited about it just as a way to celebrate Easter. And so she took these skills that she'd been crafting. She's learning how to paint, countless hours practicing. And she painted this amazing picture. It, It took my breath away. You might have seen it. We have it hanging in the prayer room. This picture of Jesus. And what she told me about it was that on the base of the canvas, she went and she wrote descriptors and names of Jesus by hand. And then she prayed over it. And then she began to paint on top of it. And so throughout this thing, you have the names of Jesus and his face there. And I remember when I saw it, I was almost moved to tears at the power of this painting. Well, she painted it for Easter in this building in Lake Highlands. And then she moved to Asia to be a part of planting churches there and, and didn't know what would become of the painting. And we've since moved buildings and we took this painting. And we said, we've got to take this with us. And now it sits in the prayer room in the back of our facility where people spend hours each week praying to the Lord inspired by this painting that she did long ago that she might not even remember today. And that's the idea that we're communicated with here, that there are things in our lives, skills and talents and work that you and I, that we do, that's inspired by the Lord, 
It's like her taking that painting and making something for the glory of God, but not knowing where it's going to go. And then God takes it in his hand, and it begins in one place. It ends in another, right? And it becomes this long-term piece of inspiration in the new world that God is building. And each one of you has that potential. Each person on the planet has that potential. That's the type of world that God is building. That's so exciting to think about our everyday life and to realize this is not done in vain, but that you're building for God's kingdom. You may not know how he's going to use it, but beloved, he is going to use it. Our work is not in vain. Okay, last thing that I want to show you is in verse 22. Uh, Chapter 22, verse 22. And it says this, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. So now here's the water that's there. Right? The sea of chaos is gone, but there's this new water that's there. It's as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And down the middle of the great street of the city and on each side of the river stood the tree of life. And note what's happening. The tree of life with the water of life. It's bearing 12 crops of fruit. It's yielding its fruit every month. This fruit, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer Will there be any curse? This new heavens and new earth that Christ's return brings is a place of fruitfulness. It's a place where people and things flourish and become the full potential of who God made them to be. It's a place of life. And that's what Jesus' return brings. And I want to show you a little video from a place here on earth in this age that's experienced a touch of this new life and this fruitfulness. It's uh, Almalanga, Guatemala, and a number of years ago, they experienced this tremendous revival in their city that completely transformed their city. And some people who do documentaries went down and interviewed them, and you'll see in this short clip, they start with the... uh, talking about the jail in the city, and they moved to talking about the agricultural impact. It's a 15-minute video you can watch on YouTube. I'm only going to give you two minutes right now, but I think it will give you a taste of what's to come. So if you could play that video for us. You don't have any jails in town now? No, no hay nada. No, we don't you, have nothing. Because there's no people that, that do trouble. <laughs> no, not like before. Even the town's agricultural base has come to life. For years, crop yields around Almalanga suffered from a combination of arid land and poor work habits. But as the people have turned to God, they have seen a remarkable transformation of their land and Almolonga became a fertile valley. It is so fertile, the the land is so, so good. They produce the best vegetables. They get as many as three harvests per year. They sell their vegetables to Guatemala, south of Mexico, and El Salvador. Before the spiritual turnaround, growers were exporting four truckloads of produce a month. Now, they leave town 40 times a week. 
Nicknamed America's Vegetable Garden, Al Malonga's produce is of biblical proportions. You have to see them to believe. Beets is four and a half pounds. A carrot is this size. It is, it is just unbelievable. It... It's bigger than my heart. Intrigued by the dimensions of these vegetables and the town's 1,000% increase in agricultural productivity, researchers from the U.S. and other foreign countries have come to Almolonga to learn their secret. But the answer is not what they expected. The, the wisdom that God gave the farmers in Almolonga produced better crops than uh, the scientific methods yielded. And, um, uh, the farmers constantly give the glory to the Lord for uh, producing the, the bountiful harvest. Before, when we harvested the radish, it would take up to 60 days. But when God came into town, it only took 40. And now, quite often, it only takes 25 days to harvest. You can see a parallel between the people's faith and improving soil. At the same time people started believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the vegetables started growing. Once people were... It's amazing, right? The size of the fruit and the vegetables there. And that's just a taste of what John is telling us is to come when Christ returns. And so as we close today, I want to remind you that we long for the return of Christ because of the hope of heaven. The hope that's stored up there that's available to all of us. That this is a place that God wants you. And this is a place that God wants me. And this is a place that God wants everyone to get to be a part of. And that gives us hope no matter what we're going through. And that fuels our longing and our waiting for the return of Christ in this season of our lives. And so I want to invite you to stand with that as we close. And we're going to close by taking communion together. And to remember Christ's incarnation, his arrival, to remember his sacrifice on the cross and to long and to look together for his return. But before we do that, I want to give an opportunity. If you're here today and we have people each and every week in our church that are attending church, that are exploring faith. You might be like, I don't know that I know Jesus. I'm not sure that that, that destination is what's in store for me, I've never made Jesus Lord. I want to speak to you for just a few moments. We, we see what God desires for our lives, right? And then we look at the world around us and we see so much brokenness, both externally in the headlines of today, but also in our own hearts. We can see the brokenness and we can sometimes wonder how in the world did we get here if this is what God desired. And what Jesus tells us is that the brokenness of this world is not as it's always been and is not what it always will be. But that God created you and he created the world and he created everything. And he created it perfect and he created it as a place of life. But mankind, that we turned from God. We said, hey, we don't want to do it your way. We don't want you to be our king. We don't want you to be our creator. And we wanted to take matters into our own hands. We wanted to go our own way, do life on our own terms. And when we did that, when we cut off that connection with our creator, when we pushed away his purpose and adopted our own brokenness and pain and sin and death came into our world and we see it 
every day. But God didn't leave us there. He loved you and he loved the planet so much that he sent his son, Jesus. God was skin on, came and he lived amongst us. And he lived a perfect life and he healed the sick and he fed the poor and he taught people about who God was. And then he went to the cross and he died for your sin and mine, offering to take your sin on him and in his place give you his righteousness, give you his indestructible life. And that's what's offered to us. And when we receive that, when we repent of going our own way and we say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to make you Lord of my life. We begin to be restored and renewed and made new and restored back to God's perfect, perfect design. Now, that future that we just spoke about is what is in front of us. And so I want to give you the opportunity today. If you've never said, Jesus, I repent of going my own way. I want to make you Lord of my life. You are the king and I want to follow you. Not you be my co-pilot, but you be my pilot. You be in the driver's seat. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So if I get everyone to bow your head for just a moment, it may be for the first time or today may be your first Sunday back in church in a long time. And maybe as a kid you decided to follow Jesus, but life got hard and just got you off track and you're trying to make your way back to God. And I want you to know God is not sitting back hoping that you get your act cleaned up, but that he is pursuing you. And I believe he's brought you here today. And I want to give you an opportunity as well to say, Jesus, I'm recommitting my life to you and to following you. So if I get every head bowed and every eye closed, what we're going to do is in just a moment, if that's you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand. There's nothing magical about raising your hand. We're not going to call you up on stage or put your name on a billboard. But what it does is it allows you to take a step of faith, a physical step of faith that's a first step in this transformation of your life that comes with following Jesus. So again, if everyone could bow their head and close their eyes, if that's you, if you would raise your hand, I want to pray with you. So just raise your hand if you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life and you want to follow him or you want to recommit your life to him today. Praise God. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Okay, let's pray together. If you had your hand up, pray this prayer. And in church, I'd love for you to pray this prayer with our friends. It's a great prayer for us to pray. Jesus, you're amazing. Thank you that you love me. I repent of going my own way. I want to follow you all the days of my life. Come in and restore me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. It's so exciting. We're going to have the communion efficients up front, and as they come forward, the worship team will lead us, and you can come forward and take of the bread and take of the cup. And, and parents, if you want your kids to partake of communion, bring them. Uh, we'd love for them to experience that as well, but we'll let you as a parent make that decision. Uh, and you can come forward and take of the elements when you're ready. Return to your seat. Take communion and remember the Lord and look forward to his return.
Savior in this world. 